with a historical sense of who people are, we tend to be more nuanced and more forgiving of other people as well. Uh, so while STEM is extremely valuable because it allows us to work on the world very, very well, history allows us to work on each other really, really well as well. Welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews, and today I welcome Michael Street, a historian, a history teacher. Actually, I think he wears about half a dozen other hats as well. Today, we're discussing the discipline of history, how teaching history is actually always, in some way, a political act. And we'll be looking at the content of the new Australian curriculum as well. For those of you who don't know, I teach history myself in years 9 and 10, so being able to sit down with someone like Michael, who's really experienced and well-read, well, that was a real treat for me. A bit of background trivia for you, actually. As we fired up the Zoom call around mid-afternoon, I couldn't help but notice that Michael was looking pretty second-hand, a little sleep-deprived. It actually came out only moments later that he was in Jerusalem at that time, and it wasn't even 6am over there yet. Now, I don't know about you, but that's what I call dedication. Now, our discussion today sort of runs in parallel to Michael's article in the February 2023 edition of the Christian Teachers Journal. Um, if you read that article, this will be a great companion, but I've also worked hard to make sure that this discussion stands on its own two feet, and it will be really clear to you even if you haven't got a copy of the journal. As always, before we hit record today, we prayed for you that whether you're a teacher or a student or parent or another community member, that through this discussion, you would be more equipped to grow God's kingdom through Christian education. Well, Michael Street, welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Oh, look, it's a real treat. I've been looking forward to our discussion today as one history teacher uh, to another. Now, we're at an interesting point of the year. We're looking forward to 2023. Uh, tell me, what have you been up to in your holidays? Uh, I'm currently in Jerusalem. I uh, was a recipient of the Gandil Holocaust uh, Studies Program for Australian Educators. And I'm here with a group of uh, 40 other teachers from across Australia studying at Yad Vashem, uh, exploring the Holocaust for the last three weeks. And uh, I'm going to be finishing about four days before I have to walk back into school for the next year. Wow. Wow. That is, I tell you what, that's unbelievable. For most people, their idea of a holiday is sitting on a beach somewhere, drinking small drinks with umbrellas in them. You're over in Israel. You're studying the Holocaust, of all things. Um, tell me, has, what, what has been some of the interesting insights you've gained over the period of your study tour so far? I think the key insight for me is that when we study Holocaust a lot of the time, uh, we have a tendency to focus on perpetrators because actors are the ones who move history. But often that's a incorrect centering of the narrative. When we recenter the narrative on Jewish lives before, during, and after the Holocaust, we rather construct a narrative not of necessarily absolute devastation, but a story of resilience uh, that's placed in a much larger and more valuable context for us if we're to understand the Holocaust in terms of human nature rather than just a unique kind of horrific event in history. 
Well, that's a fantastic insight. I know I'll probably send you an email or two after our discussion because I'm, I teach Year 10 history. Uh, we cover off World War II, the Holocaust, these sorts of things. So I'm sure you're going to be a great resource for people like me who are teaching those sorts of courses. Now, I, uh, I did a sneak preview of your CV. So I had a bit of a look at what you've got going on. And I see you're, you're a teacher, so you're teaching in a school. You're a lecturer at the National Institute. You're actually also the director of the History Teachers Association of New South Wales. So you are neck deep. You are about as into education as it's possible for one to be. Have you always been involved in education? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so in, um, in just about any capacity. Uh, I, when I left school at the, in the bright days of 2006, um, went to university and thought I would do something entirely different, uh, even though my mother kept telling me to do education because mum knows best. Uh, I very quickly came crawling back, realising that education was actually my destiny. And um, I've never looked back. It is an amazing thing to do. I love teaching. It's the greatest. I've got a somewhat similar story. I ran a few of my own businesses before I moved into education. And the thing about a calling um, or a vocation, uh, which is basically the same idea, is that often it just gets you. God gets his man, you know, and if you're meant to be somewhere, sooner or later, you end up sort of drifting over and sedimentizing over in that particular area. So uh, you've got a kindred spirit in me, brother. So not only are you an educator, you're a Christian educator, and you've chosen to work in a Christian school, and that's wonderful. We need plenty of Christian teachers in Christian schools. Uh, If you had to give, say, a 60-second elevator pitch for Christian education, uh, what would you say? What is the purpose of schools? To prepare people for the future, to prepare people for the world. Uh, Christian education prepares people for what the world could be as reflected in God. Um, I think the pitch sells itself there, that if we are to produce graduates, if schools are to produce graduates, these graduates should see the world not as something that needs to change for its own benefit, but something that needs to change because we are motivated by the Spirit uh, in serving our Lord. And uh, I believe that Christian education, especially in a Reformed context, provides the framework and systems that we can use to make that happen. Like, uh, it is a not a, not just a vision of development of children, it's a vision that encompasses transformation of the world. And that is a beautiful thing. That is absolutely a beautiful thing. And that's such a powerful question you asked there, Michael. What's the point of this? What's the, the telos of this whole end game? Because you talk to many people and that's a brand new question. Um, whether they've been through a public system or whether they might have sent five of their own kids through a Christian education setup. Actually, actually stopping and asking the question, it's a powerful question and one that almost answers itself. For almost any Christian out there, uh, the Lordship of Christ, uh, the worship of his people in all things, I think they're going to be the sort of plumb line that often will lead back to Christian education. Now, let's take a brief pivot here. Let's look at your article. So you've been kind enough to write an article in February's edition of the Christian Teachers Journal. I read that article. It was fantastic. Thanks for your work there. Um, one thing I like about you already is that you seem not to pull punches. So you begin your article, Michael, with a really bold claim. 
you actually say history teaching is always a political act. Now, of course, if there's one thing at schools that we're very reticent to do, it's to talk about politics, isn't it? What is it you think about the discipline of history, as opposed to maybe maths or art or something like that, that makes history an inherently political discipline? Well, let's, uh, let's have a look at what governments are invested in in science and maths first, and then that will help clarify what I mean by that. Uh, science and maths are not in competition with government. Uh, our government invests in science and maths, but the, the main telos for science and mathematics in terms of our governments is to produce economic profitability. Um, it serves our communities economically, socially, those kinds of things, and our governments are happy for us to do it. However, uh, governments are heavily invested in the formation of national identities. They are heavily invested in developing a particular kind of person. And so history is often seen, especially in Australia, I mean, especially in Australia, as the pathway for governments to influence the ways that these identities are formed. And so history teaching is always going to be at the fulcrum of that relationship between the government and its people. So if a history teacher teaches a narrative which conforms to the identity that a government wants its people to turn into, that's political. It is supporting a political project. If a, his, if a history teacher rejects that, it is equally political uh, because, again, it is responding. It is always talking to power. So whether a history teacher is teaching the curriculum as it is written or going completely rogue and breaking the rules, they are always going to be talking to power in some way, shape or form and thus acting politically. That's really interesting. So... To use a metaphor, what you're essentially saying is the government has made the first move across the chessboard, and no matter what we do, whether we res respond in kind or whether we have a completely new variation, we're actually we're in the game. We're playing the game of chess with the government. Um, and you're right. I think whatever affects the schools, well, that will affect the polis. Just give it enough time to percolate and, and, and sift through. Let's press pause on this discussion for a moment. Over the last year or so, some of you have been asking how you can support the Christian Education Podcast. Well, let me give you three ways, all starting with S. The first S is simply to subscribe. So that's just a setting on your podcast app, actually. And if you do that, that helps me probably more than you think. The second S is to share. So if you really love one of these episodes, why not push it through your social media? You can even send it to an educator directly if you think they'd benefit from it. And the third S is to get in touch. Now, I know that's not an S, but let's not get bogged down in the details here. If there's someone who you think would make a great contribution to this podcast, why not send me their name? Hey, you can even dob in yourself. That's just fine by me. So if you're able to do those three S's to subscribe, share, and get in touch, well, that will help me do the very same thing that we're all trying to do here, to see God's kingdom grow through Christian education. Having said that, let's get back to the discussion. 
Now we talk about history as if everyone knows what we're talking about here, but I, it would be my contention, Michael, that history has changed quite a bit over the preceding decades. Um, I talked to perhaps my mum and my Alma, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm Dutch, uh, my grandma, that sort of level back in the family tree. And one could argue that history is about uh, names and dates and places. You're using all your sort of memory faculties to try and get these skills inside, or these understandings rather, inside your head. Um, whereas now history has actually pivoted and it's mainly based around skills such as like using and evaluating primary and secondary sources or looking at concepts like uh, maybe significance or continuity and, and change. Do you think this has actually been a change for the better in the discipline of history? Yes, I, I think net, I think yes, I think it has been good for history. Um, I think that the shift, if we're to identify where students sit inside that shift, we have moved away from people outside history as an academic discipline as consumers of history. And so uh, your ordinary person watches documentaries, they consume history, they don't create history. The shift towards skills is about turning students into mini historians, that they work like historians. Uh, however, and it's a, a, a very big however, uh, skills by themselves violates kind of the basics of educational psychology around learning. Uh, there is no such thing as a high quality skills-based lesson. Um, they're all skills are relevant to particular knowledge sets. We've known for a very long time, especially around things like chess playing, that when people are not knowledgeable in a particular area, the way that they solve problems is through trial and error. Uh, whereas someone who has rich knowledge in a space, they understand the context of how problem solving works in that space, they're much more capable in their abilities to handle those problems quickly. And so there is no such thing as a historical skill divorced from historical knowledge. And so we need to be really careful here. Um, my colleague, Paul Kayyem, is a big advocate for returning to more explicit forms of historical teaching, move away from guided inquiry, focus more on teachers actually instructing in narratives and then building skills out of those contextualized narratives. Uh, so we may have gone a little bit too far towards the skill side of things at times, depending on the teacher and the situation they're in. Uh, but the knowledge is always going to be central if we're to produce highly skilled historical thinkers. I wholeheartedly agree. And to tell you the truth, Michael, that's music to my ears. Uh, I, after the first couple of years of teaching history, I looked at a group of students who were sort of graduating out of my year nine, 10 history courses. And I think they'd done a really good job of getting their hands dirty in the sources um, and doing some great critical and creative thinking. But I thought, yeah, I wonder if I press them, if if they could tell me the, the dates of World War one or the key players and the main alliances in World War Two. It's really interesting. I think you need a basic level of knowledge to be able to incorporate more knowledge. 
Um, I've got a brother. He also teaches at Calvin Christian School. And if we both watched someone fix a car for two hours, he would get two hours better at fixing cars. There's no doubt about that. I would get zero hours better at fixing cars because I just don't know which way is up to start with. And I think that's where the explicit instruction comes in. Is that something you've worked into your practice, Michael, just, just getting back to sort of um, also using skills and concepts, but using facts, data, names, places, faces, these sorts of things as well? I've actually been on a pedagogical roller coaster uh, over my career. <laughs> Uh, I started actually as an English teacher, and uh, which has certain methods attached to it. Uh, and then I worked in uh, Indonesia, in Jakarta, in a Christian school there. And we worked with the IB, which is highly steeped in guided inquiry method. Sure. And so I actually think my explicit instruction awakening was probably a little bit later than most. Uh, I would say that um, having a... Uh, I do, we do, you do approach, incorporating knowledge has only really been a part of my practice for the last three or four years, despite this being my 12th year of teaching. One of the things that I've seen, and the literature seems to support this, is that that guided inquiry, for example, in our context, maybe you're giving students a lot of time and space to work on their National History Challenge project. One of the things it does, and it's great, there's nothing wrong with it, but if you're not really careful, it can actually widen the disparity between high-achieving students and lower-achieving students because the high-achieving students, they know how to break down these problems, they know how to approach really complex, big tasks, and they just go to the moon. You know, They have an absolute ball and they learn a bunch. And then you've got the lower-ability students, and even if you're working really hard with them, um, you can be pushing them uphill and they can still sort of be sitting over there picking a scab for a long period of time. And it's not a rich educational experience um, for them. So I, I really like what you're talking about here, that movement back. I mean, if, if you use the image of the sort of pendulum swinging, which is an interesting sort of narratival framework and you could put it over a lot of historical events, um, do you think the pendulum is actually swinging back now? We, we swung right out, lots of guided inquiry, lots of choose-your-own-adventure learning. Do you think in the collective consciousness of educators, it's now swinging back a little bit? Um, I'm not entirely certain. Um, the, if we were to go with something more extreme like a constructivist PBL approach, um, They've had 20 to 30 years to produce the evidence. It has never come. <laughs> um, we're, we're still waiting for the evidence to show that it works. Uh, and there will always be a part of the educational community that will be invested in this approach that treats uh, discovery learning as essential. Um, my impression in New South Wales at the very least is that as the HSC exam has become more uh, filled with more and more things, uh, it's become more and more necessary to take an explicit instruction approach. However, Queensland, which doesn't have standardized exams at the end of year 12, may mm. have a slightly different approach going on. Um, I'm not so sure about Tasmania. Sure, sure. Well, we do have our standardized exams down here. Um, I, look, I could spend all day talking to you about these sorts of uh, pedagogical 
twos and fro's, although I want to get onto, I've got a few other questions that I'm really eager to ask you. And the first of all sort of has to do with the public reputation of the discipline of history. Um, there are some people out there, obviously not you and I, we're sold, right? We, we've, we've drunk the Kool-Aid on history, no doubt about that, but there's there's been a huge push, hasn't there, um, from the Australian government towards STEM subjects. And a fellow author in the February edition of the Christian Teachers Journal, Roger Fernando, a 40-plus year science teacher um, from Mount Evelyn Christian School, he, he notes this in his article, big push for science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Um, why do you think um, history is an essential subject. Many many of us have a mental category for why STEM subjects are necessary. You talked about it earlier, actually. The, the growth and prosperity of our nation, in some ways, depends on those skills. Why do you think history, why would you say history is an essential subject, and what do you think we'd actually lose if it was removed from the curriculum? So, uh, this is... Uh, this is something I like to, a little saying that if history is about anything, it's definitely not about the future. And yet somehow it always is. Yeah, nice. Uh, yeah, so history is a set of activities in the past that show us what has worked and what hasn't. It teaches us about human nature. If we were to say, just imagine a world where history doesn't exist, uh, the world wouldn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, we also walk around in our heads with a theory of mind, a theory of how other people operate. History is a big catalog of those theories of mind. What constitutes evil? What constitutes good? What constitutes ethics and all these kinds of things? These are even divorced from philosophy as its own kind of discipline that with a historical uh, sense of who people are, we tend to be more nuanced and more forgiving of other people as well. Uh, so I would say that while STEM is extremely valuable because it allows us to work on the world very, very well, history allows us to work on each other really, really well as well. That's an amazing insight. I'm really impressed by that. Yes. I think history, you're right, it does somehow, and it's funny because you think of it directionally, it's looking back, but it can't help inform the way we are looking forward as well. There's a great Mark Twain quote that I always really bed down in for the first lesson or two each year with the year nines and tens, and he said uh, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Uh, and I think that is a key insight from, from someone like Mark Twain, that um, we, we don't expect to see exactly the same things happening again, um, but we do see echoes, shadows, types of the same things going on. And I was teaching um, Year 10 history when the whole Russia-Ukraine situation started to deteriorate pretty badly. And we were able to pick that apart and go, okay, so we got some alliances over here and some alliances over there. Wow, how, this is a little bit like um, perhaps this Gavrilo um, Princeps and Franz Ferdinand and these sorts of things. And all of a sudden, uh, people are realising that we can't tell the future, uh, but we actually can tell the past. And that often gets us pretty close, doesn't it? Have there been any moments in your teaching career where you've been teaching some history 
Um, and you're starting to see the rhyme or the echo of that history in the present day. Ironically, uh, my example would be the same as yours. Uh, I was teaching the history of Russia and the Soviet Union, and we were looking at the Ukrainian genocide as the war was beginning in Ukraine. Uh, and my students had a an almost epiphany around this relationship between the past and the present. Um, also, having a richer understanding of why so many Ukrainians speak Russian and not Ukrainian, uh, steeped so heavily in Stalinist, uh, the Stalinist Soviet project. Uh, it's yeah, it was a very special, moving moment uh, for that to happen. Um, and another one was uh, during the uh, Arab Spring. Uh, soon after the Arab Spring, uh, my students uh, were studying the democratization of history and how revolutions work from bottom up rather than top down. And there was this example of a bottom up revolution just sitting there. Uh, it was really quite beautiful. Well, that's the predictive power of history, isn't it? And in some ways, we might call it the explanatory power of history. It allows us to look back and understand what happened back there. Uh, we can look around right now and also look forward using our historical knowledge. So you've given a really good account of why history is a key, a vital area. Um, let's go one step further. You and I are both history teachers, but we're Christian history teachers. And sort of following on from that last question, um, what is, what, why is it really important that we not only teach history, but that we're able to teach it from a Christian worldview? So I would want to dispel our audience of the notion that history is a set of objective facts. Um, it's not. It's not a set of objective facts. Uh, history is constructed by human beings uh, for a purpose, and those works that those historians produced are, uh, in the words of Keith Jenkins, used and abused by a range of people for a range of purposes. Uh, and so if we were to just teach the history curriculum as it is, as it is written on the page, uh, it is unlikely that we would produce the kinds of people that Christian communities want to produce. Uh, a Christian worldview or a biblically informed worldview is a particular way of seeing the world which is not evident in our curriculum. And so we need to be really careful here. Uh, just like the empiricists of the 19th century, the historical empiricists of the 19th century, who assumed that by writing history as it actually happened, uh, all that was happening was that they were just adopting the biases of their sources. Uh, they were not actually being neutral. They were just taking the sources, assuming that they were being neutral, but all they did was just take on the biases of the past. And so all historical information, I'm not going to say truth, all historical information needs to be mediated in some way, shape or form. And that mediation can either be through a Christian worldview or some other worldview, but it will be through a worldview. 
uh, when and on top of that, because history is so fraught around the ideas of this development of a particular kind of identity, of which worldview is so central to, uh, to kind of uh, avoid and assume that everything will be okay if we teach it divorce from a Christian worldview uh, is naive at best. I like the idea that you've talked about neutrality there. This is a, an idea as old as the hills when it comes to educational philosophy from a Christian point of view. Is it, um, yes, we're coming from a Christian point of view, but you know what? Everyone else is coming from some other kind of point of view as well. There, there is no neutrality with worldviews. There's no neutrality with history. And as the old saying goes, um, though, it's those who say they have no biases that are actually the most blind to their biases. One of the things you mentioned, a sort of reformed uh, perspective on education as well, and one of the things that I so dearly appreciate about the reformed understanding of uh, the scriptures and of sort of theology proper, the, 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 the person of God, is that we worship a very big God. Uh, we, we don't worship the, as some have called him, the sort of divine um, clockmaker who sets everything up and then just goes and does something else somewhere else. You know, and just lets it all unfold according to natural causes. Actually, we worship a God who, as it says in Ephesians, he, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we know that uh, whatever we're studying, on some level, somehow, um, God's fingerprints are on this. There is a divine intent somewhere. Um, is, that, is that an idea that's actually made its way into your conversations with students as you're going through your historical curriculum? Uh, the idea that history is teleological, that it's heading towards an end point guided by a hand, not a, a, a disembodied figure, not a prime mover at the beginning of the universe, uh, but guided by a hand that loves humanity and wants it to flourish um, in his image. Yes, uh, these things come up regularly um, in the classroom and are also planned. Uh, I'm very much uh, in favour of the idea of planning Christian perspectives in the classroom uh, to try to teach a Christian perspective when it comes up in the moment is not ideal and also does not uh, capture the enormity of God in the way that we would hope. And so, yeah, so... Uh, Ensuring to plan for Christian perspectives around the guided nature of history, both the good and bad, uh, and learning from both situations that if there is a moment where humanity is cast in a negative light, there is always some cracks in there where you can show the other side really well. And similarly, when there are really good positive things, there are always cracks to show a deeper understanding of humanity and the negative as well. That's really interesting. I think um, you hear the refrain, a lot of people without a historical perspective, as you've called it in your article, uh, historical consciousness, um, they often, one of the key myths that we have going around today is is this the cult of progress, the cult of scientific progress. Again, uh, Roger Fernando talked about the idolatry 
of STEM. Uh, we don't use it in its proper place, set under Christ as a rightly ordered discipline. Many of us, especially in the West, can be tempted to make an idol out of these things and say, you know, you know what will solve our biggest problems, what will satisfy our deepest needs. It'll be our use of technology. It'll be our understanding of science and our ability to manipulate natural matter. And if there's one thing God has been hammering home into the hard head of humanity through the 19th and 20th century, it's that science and technology are not the answer to our deepest need. Every, every time we think that we have created something that will sort of end suffering or bring us into this humanistic eschaton, it just bites us. It bites us like a viper, doesn't it? And it's, it's no good. That's a lesson God has been teaching us over and over. And that's a powerful lesson I bring to my students uh, time after time after time. There are also moments uh, throughout history where we did actually think that we'd solved it, um, especially in the post-triumphalist period after the Cold War. You get uh, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, the idea that we're heading towards the generalization of liberal democracies around the world. Uh, last I checked, liberal democracies on the retreat. <laughs> uh, and so we, we need to be aware that uh, any moment where we as a society feel comfortable, feel like we have resolved the issues, sin is always waiting there. Sin is always waiting to reveal our true nature. <laughs> now, as we enter the home stretch of our discussion here, Michael, I want to touch on something that you've mentioned in your article, and that's the way Christianity is represented in the Australian curriculum. Now, no matter who you are, you are unhappy with how Christianity is in the curriculum. Some people say our Christian heritage, a clear Christian heritage, is being whitewashed. And other people who would be sort of on the other end of the ideological spectrum are saying, well, it's, it's nothing but Christianity in there. We're, we're indoctrinating our school students. Tell me this. You've been teaching history for some time. How do you think the latest version of the Australian curriculum, version 9, um, how does that present Christianity compared to, say, previous curricula? Uh, from my perspective, I would say there is not a great deal to worry about. Uh, how do we quantify how Christian a curriculum is? Uh, when the first draft for version 9 came out, the Australian Christian lobby went th trawled through it and basically did a text analysis and looked for any mention of Christianity and where it wasn't in the previous syllabus. I'm not entirely sure this is a, a helpful way of handling things. Uh, historical events are not pinned down very specifically in the curriculum, and it wasn't the case either in 2012 with the Australian curriculum then. Uh, you're not told to speak about this person doing this particular thing at this particular time. Rather, you're given broad categories inside time frames in geographical locations to work with. And so whether Christianity is mentioned or not, uh, there is no real concern here because a Christian teacher with their head screwed on can find the kinds of stories that they need to find and also remain uh, remain consistent with the curriculum. So you're saying it, it's not a case of the Christian teacher being in the Christian school and feeling like there's this big government authoritarian boot pushing down on them and, and um, forcing out 
anti-Christian rhetoric or, um, or things that are displeasing to Christ. So you're actually saying almost no matter what is in the curriculum, we as Christian teachers, um, through our sort of worldview thinking and our commitment to the Lordship of Christ, we can actually teach what is there, whatever is there, in such a way uh, to honour Christ and, and to, uh, to show true history, history under the Lordship of Jesus. And, and it is important to keep in mind that we do have a contract with our federal and state governments to teach the curriculum as it's written. But I think we overemphasize that relationship far too much because schools also have social contracts with their teachers, students, and families. Those communities are probably more significant in dictating how things are taught. Uh, even in public schools who are committed to particular pedagogical approaches, like if they're a guided inquiry school or whatever, that's a social contract with their community and they have consented to that approach. It's not written into the curriculum that those schools need to do it that way. And so we need to keep that in mind that the school is at the centre of two sets of social contracts between the government and between its communities. The government tell us what to teach, but the social contract with our communities helps us to know how to teach. And I would say that in a worldview sense, if we're talking about worldview development, the how is much more significant than the what. We are based in schools which have a really rich heritage and understanding of partnership with the child's parents. We believe that obviously God has given the right and the duty of education to parents and they can sure partner with a school. Um, they, they can't offload to a school. So this might make you unpopular with some teachers because there are some teachers out there, um, Lord willing, not in our schools, that are actually a little wary of teachers. Um, uh, there is a Pardon me, they're not wary of teachers, they are teachers. They're a little wary of parents and they go, oh, crumbs, you know, parent teachers. Oh, I've got a parent email. Uh, would you actually say, um, due to the social contract we're engaged with um, families in, that family interaction and family correspondence with the teachers is a really important part of education? Absolutely. Uh, we have a mandate to partner with families. Uh, parents are the first teachers, we're the second teachers. And uh, to assume that the first teachers have no role in education is a bit silly and a bit self-centered. And uh, that's not the game I want to play. Uh, if we have parents who are nervous about our history curriculum, it is our responsibility to bring them on board, uh, to maintain that partnership. So if we are, if parents are concerned, they are concerned about that relationship between school and government, leverage the relationship between school and communities, help them understand what your mission is, make them confident that you as Christian teachers are there to help them love their kids in place of them in that school environment, in loco parentis that they need to be confident that when they hand their kids over, that you are like their parents. Every day when I go to school, I have 150 children. I have five children at home and 150 at school. Um, thankfully, I only, have to, I only need to deal with them for about an hour at a time. Uh, but, 
But the point here is that if parents are concerned, schools need to help them have faith in what the mission of the school is. That's wonderful. It's far better than going behind the back, far better than gossiping to other teachers. In an upcoming episode, so here's a little sneak preview for you, in a discussion uh, with Simon Matthews, who joined me on the Christian Education Podcast, it'll come out in a couple of weeks, uh, he said that conflict, um, if nothing else, is an opportunity. Conflict is an opportunity. And what you're saying now, Michael, is conflict perhaps around the curriculum, if people feel it's been politicised one way or the other, Um, Well, it's actually an opportunity to do business in our core business, in parent partnership, and strengthen the very bonds that our schools are founded on. Well, Michael Street, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real treat to discuss these sorts of matters with you. I feel like we've really covered quite a lot of ground in our discussion. Uh, So again, thank you for your time, and I pray that God blesses you richly uh, in all your various roles within education in 2023. Thank you very much. 